Peace, peace, and welcome. We're glad you're here. This is the Cook on Monday Morning Podcast. I am here with the homie, Randy Saraguchi. Thank you for being here, man. Peace. Blessings. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity here. This is going to be a good conversation. Yeah, no, no. I'm excited that you're here. Yeah. Um, at Cook on Monday Morning, what we believe is that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can change our year. And if we can change our year, we can change our lives. I'm super excited to have Randy on because he is doing a lot of exciting things as the executive director of Urban Ed Academy. Uh, we met several years ago. He has a really incredible backstory. I want to get into who he is, the work that he's doing, and what he's building in San Francisco. Um, thank you again, my brother. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, now I'm getting kind of nervous now, man. This <laughs> nah, is, man. This is, we you went from, man. Well, from Monday morning to changing the world. <laughs> uh, well, you're doing it. I'm you're with it, though. It. Yeah, yeah, let's get it. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about what Urban Ed Academy is. Um, Urban Ed Academy is um, a homegrown organization in Baby Hunters Point, uh, southeast side of the San Francisco. Um, it was founded in 2010 uh, as a Saturday school for boys of color, uh, giving them STEM experiences in elementary school by matching men of color that look like them. You know, our, our motto is you can't be what you can't see mm -hmm. um, and representation matters. Mm -hmm. So if it matters on Saturdays, if it matters on Mondays, it should matter every day of the week. Um, and now we have a mission to put as many brothers, um, black and brown men um, into elementary schools so that kids can see themselves earlier um, and have a better understanding of who this person's gonna be that they're gonna interact with for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in a very wild place like San Francisco, in terms of the housing market and this uh, gentrification crisis happening, um, having teachers live in places where they work is increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. So we've uh, come up with an initiative called Man the Bay um, where we're trying to courageously change the face of what talent looks like in schools um, and are moving 100 men of color into San Francisco to teach for a service-based opportunity here with our children. Mm, mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, when I, when I first heard about Urban Ed Academy, it was when it was still a Saturday school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you can picture you going in on a Saturday morning and it's, a hundred kids, all boys, third through fifth grade, like running around in a uh, you know one of a, one of our community facilities at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I walked in, I was immediately blown away because you know there there are so many narratives about how our families engage in school. Yeah, one of the main ones is they don't want to learn. Yeah, right. All right, so we have a bunch of families. And on a Saturday morning that are are getting their kids more instruction. Right. So that was the first thing that was like powerful about it. The second thing was that when when I saw the students doing STEM workshops, they were like completely locked in. Yeah. They were learning how to repair cell phones. Uh, they were learning about they were doing different math problems. They were doing coding and the level of engagement in each of the rooms was was really incredible. Yeah. And I, I think that was a little bit before your time, before you came on to run Urban Ed. Uh, what were you doing before you were running Urban Ed? I was in Sacramento. I was working there for three and a half years. Um, at the time, I was working for Mayor Kevin Johnson mm -hmm. um, right before the 2016 election uh, when he decided not to run. Um, but uh, with him doing kind of a ton of stuff, um, but got to do some traveling um, and working with uh, a nonprofit affiliated with him as well called Stand Up For Great Schools. Uh, we were doing some work trying to galvanize um, uh, African-American communities to care about their schools uh, or try to take some ownership over a portion of the school by sparking some conversations and then trying to connect with professionals across the country that had the opportunity to take an idea, whatever they had to the next level. Um, and so for some folks that was um, uh, coming up with new innovative school models. Uh, for some folks, it was deeper parental engagement, whatever it was. Um, as a, at the time, he was the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And so along the travel schedule that he had, we had opportunities to do some more deep 
community engagement around mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. That was one project. And then I'm just lucky that we had the president that we had in office at the time and the My Brother's Keeper um, challenge mm-hmm. was was active. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just a ton of energy was going around it. You got to learn a lot about what other mayors were doing. Um, so our base was SAC, um, but we had a chance to get some insight into what some other cool ideas were looking like around the country. Mm. Um, and then had to get some policy work done too uh, mm-hmm. in a very interesting town, man. Mm-hmm. Sacramento. <laughs> Yeah, city halls. But yeah. did you grow up in Sacramento? I didn't. I didn't. I'm, I'm from originally from New Jersey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Where, where in New Jersey? Little beach town called Asbury Park. Asbury Park. Yeah, on the, on the Jersey Shore. Oh, okay. I mean, P, they, MTV co-opted that. Oh, you know that term, right, Jersey right. Shore. So uh-huh. I try to <laughs> try to edge around it. Yeah. Well, what was what was your Ashby Park, Jersey Shore childhood like? What did that look like? Yeah, Asbury Park. I mean, so I didn't notice at the time, but um, Asbury Park is in Monmouth County which is one of three Republican counties in New Jersey. Okay. So it's Asbury Park, Neptune, Long Branch, maybe Keyport, four cities or so out of all of them in the in the, in the county uh-huh. that are majority black. Uh-huh. So it was one of the few cities in, in the state that had a majority black population. Uh-huh. And we're a small city, it was like 15,000 people. Uh-huh. But, um, I, I thought that's what the world was. Mm. You know, I thought mm. there was black people everywhere uh-huh. until you venture out uh-huh. to the mall and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're everywhere. We're just not everywhere, you know. Right. <laughs> um, so, so talk a little bit about, you, you know, your upbringing, what your home environment was like. You obviously have built a career in education. I know it didn't always, you know, start there. I think you have a law degree. I have a law degree. Yeah. So what was what was your upbringing like? What was life like in Ashbury Park? Ashbury Park was um it was it was it was interesting. I felt like I was sheltered somewhat to um to what I, I felt like I was sheltered. I'll stop there. Okay. Uh full stop. And I felt like I, I was in a small town and it was just that was our world was the beach, was playing ball, going to school, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just felt like a normal town, normal lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like a lot of people say that about Jersey. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I uh, I grew up with my mom um, in a blended family. I'm I'm also learning those terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, She and my father split early and I don't really have a relationship with him. Um, that, that happened very early and it's, we can get back to that, but I didn't grow up with him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but she remarried and I have a brother, two sisters. I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. So I got a little crack at leadership, uh-huh. uh, early okay. in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, didn't know it at the time either, but like our, our schools were just not great mm-hmm. in Asbury Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom knew that she had foresight and I did it. I went to a high school called high technology high school, number one high school in the state. You mm-hmm. got a test to get in, mm-hmm. similar to Lowell mm-hmm. here in the city. And um, that was a mind-blowing experience. I had a whole lot of interesting stories and things happened there. But it's it's interesting. It took me getting out of my hometown to finally get an understanding, my first understanding of race mm-hmm. and racial dynamics. Okay. In my freshman year, it was a, it was a girl, uh, non-black, I, I was going to say white. And I was like, no, we don't say white. That's not a curse word. Yeah. This is a white girl uh-huh. yeah. that I was talking on the phone. Right. And I remember freshman year, man, our first like back to school night, mm-hmm. overheard her yelling at, or over getting yelled at by her mom. He can't call here huh. ever again. Huh. And I won't say some of the other things I heard, but wow. I'm, like devastated. I'm like, I'm a pretty good kid. Like, right. I'm a scrawny, yeah. little curly haired kid. Uh-huh. Like I'm not going to uh-huh. hurt anybody. Yeah. And there was all of this animus for what? For nothing. And mm-hmm. so um, the the first like shock understanding of race as a social construct, right. as this fake thing that can be real, mm-hmm. depending on your experience and your vantage point, um, smacked me in the face in mm-hmm. a very high functioning institution of education. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and so did that change how you interacted socially? Did like, did you... Um, continue to embrace people that were white? Did you only embrace black people like throughout high school? How did that play out as you 
went through high school? Uh, my, my best friend, um, one of my best friends in high school was was white. Uh-huh. His name is, uh, well, I won't say his name, but um, I definitely had no problem with that. Okay. Uh, I went to a, a private school right before that. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom didn't want me to go to the middle school because she just wasn't a fan. We lived literally five minute walk mm-hmm. from the middle school. Mm-hmm. So she sent me to a Catholic school and that's probably where it was. I've noticed there were more white kids around us, but right. they were cool uh-huh. and I never had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did sort of harden my stance on being, being very proud of being black. Mm-hmm. And that was a conflicting conversation that sometimes actually came up within and outside of the family. Uh, for me, because I'm I'm mixed background, mixed background. Mm-hmm. My last name Saraguchi. Mm-hmm. My dad is 100 percent Japanese, mm-hmm. um, and there's that. So I guess to uh, like with the the with the unwritten rules of what you are, right. you're what your father was. Huh. Um, outside, I guess uh, uh, Jewish uh, lineage aside, uh-huh. so I'm, I'm Japanese, Japanese. Huh. But you know, you look and at me and talk to me uh-huh. and you're going to know there's something else there. Yeah. My mom's yeah. black and Puerto Rican. Okay. But black was the prevailing identity. Mm-hmm. It still is. Honestly. Right. Uh, so I, I hardened in that, but I was still understanding that this is a big world. Mm-hmm. You got to work with everybody. Yeah. 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 That's interesting because the, the, the father mother dynamic, I have heard that. And I've also heard black people just say, "If you got black in you, you black." And one that drop rule. That, <laughs> that comes from that 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 history of the one drop rule, and um, never being uh, if you had any black, you know, black blood in you, according to um, the you know the the messages at the time of uh, you know Jim Crow and all of that, then you were considered black. But I think you know we talked about being proud of being black. Yeah. We also proudly embrace all people of the diaspora even if they're not a hundred percent from the diaspora you know because we all kind of you know being like having a history of slavery there's all some some mixed race storylines within our lineage in america so right. so um so you're in high school where'd you go to college university of michigan okay go blue <laughs> go blue okay okay so you went from new jersey to michigan new jersey to michigan uh-huh what was that like um, man, I, I learned for the first time that everybody hates Jersey. Oh, okay. Uh, Does everybody hate Jersey? We're, we're, I mean, I mean there's always a wisecrack something like, yeah. oh, you from Jersey? Like, uh-huh. it's always like you're- Do they call it the armpit? Is that the what The armpit of America. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have heard garbage, that. Garbage, uh-huh. you know. Uh, but like the intonation goes up like Jersey? Like, yeah. you know, it's like a- How could you be from Jersey? You so cool. Yeah, nah. no, no, that wasn't always the case. Man. Right. I, I was, uh, I guess I had some Jersey- uh, I mean, I'm from Jersey. I'm never going to. I know a lot of good that. people from Jersey. They're good people, man. Yeah. But, you know, I get excited. Mm-hmm. I get maybe a little aggressive with my uh-huh. language sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you, I, I got a rude awakening in college mm-hmm. early on on that. Okay. Because most of the, most of the uh, black folks at the school were from Detroit. Okay. And Detroit is like, you know, it's player, mm-hmm. laid smooth. back, smooth. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they weren't hearing that. Okay. How was your experience in Michigan? Did you enjoy it? Man, it's the greatest university on the planet. I'll say that. Okay. Uh, free. That's free. <laughs> that is free. Okay. Uh, that's the first time there. I've heard that. Oh, man. Well, I mean, I'm a full Wolverine through okay. and through. Got I'll it. fight like hell for Michigan uh-huh. every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it uh, it was cold up there. So yeah. that aside, it's incredible, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, brilliant people everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, just so many resources that the university had at its disposal. I pledged as a freshman. Oh, okay. Um, pledged Alpha Phi Alpha. Mm-hmm. I've turned incorporated Epsilon chapter, fifth house. So we have a very proud history there. Mm-hmm. Uh, fifth uh, uh, chapter ever founded of the, one of the other greatest organizations on the planet. Okay. Um, and that shaped a lot of my experience. Mm-hmm. So I dove into leadership um, and just getting extracurricular with my collegiate experience, um, like right away. I did improv, oh. a group called Images of Identities. I did, I had a radio show 
with WCB mm. and FM. You had a radio voice. Uh, you know, try to, you know, <laughs> try to keep it cool, <laughs> mellow. <laughs> uh, I was on Wolf TV for a hot second. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on student. I got elected to student assembly. I mean, and I'm not going to go down. And then I was. You were very involved. I was involved. Yeah. And I, I did a few other things too. Okay. Um, and I had a great time. Uh-huh. I had a great time. Yeah. I was a very different college student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At Williams? yeah, I went to Williams. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I and I, if I made it to class, it was a good week. You Damn, know? For real? Like, I kinda I kinda um yeah, I mean later in college I started to get more involved. Okay. And it was a smaller school. It wasn't uh it didn't have you know, it, it had everything there. It had like different sports clubs yeah. and people kind of found their tribe early and they rode with that tribe throughout. So I didn't really find that tribe early, I kinda found the misfits that you know, as I at Williams, the people that weren't just a part of like, yeah, a lot of a lot of people at Williams, a lot of them play sports, okay, or they were okay. um, the, the quote unquote misfits, right? Okay. Well, no, not those weren't the misfits. They had a tribe. They were like a part you. of a group. I got you. I you know, got we you. we didn't we didn't have fraternities. I got rid of them in like the nineteen seventies, um, around the time the school became coed because mm-hmm. it was it was preventing people from meeting people outside of that little group. But you know they had like the arts people, the uh, the the sports people, and you know a bunch of other groups. And I and I, I found my people, but it took time. Yeah. So when people say like you know I meet I meet a lot of brothers that were a part of the fraternity world, and they talk about, they do all the little gang signs and they pat oh, their come chest, on. come <laughs> on, and they do all that stuff and it just goes <laughs> right in my head. I was like, signs. oh okay, like I guess that's cool, bro. They like go through the party with the canes and like start shouting. Oh and yeah, see, I, I can't, I can't endorse, <laughs> I can't protect you on that. But but people okay. have told me that if I were to pledge, that I would probably be an alpha. I can see that, and that uh, but I don't know what that means. It's kind of like when. When when women ask me if I'm what my sign is and I oh yeah, <laughs> and and they're like, like, oh you should be. A, he's like, oh you an Aries? Oh okay, I see why you. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it but, helps people understand you faster. Uh huh. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but I but I I definitely respect and appreciate you know longstanding organizations where people have a positive sense of community mm-hmm. and they're pushing one another to be better versions of themselves. And you know, you cook on Monday morning is kind of about that. It's kind of about elevating people that can uh that represent a better version of ourselves you know yeah and uh so you went you were you were a very active student congrats on that i think it's i'm sure you had a great time too but i think it's, i think you have to celebrate all young college students that are highly involved i think that's important why why did you go to law school um where'd you go to law school I went to uh, American University. Okay, went to DC College of Law, DC. Uh-huh. And um, I, I always knew I wanted to try to go to law school, but I got convinced to to go earlier than I think I I wanted to go. Well, mm-hmm. I was I was ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to work for Progressive Insurance uh, right out in Cleveland, Ohio, okay. right outside of Cleveland, maybe Mayfield Heights. Mm-hmm. And my best friend's dad. I remember having a conversation with him. Um, around the holiday time, senior year. Mm-hmm. And he was like, did you ever wake up and want, say, I want to be a lawyer? And I said, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Did you ever wake up and say, I want to be an insurance analyst? And I said, I mean, yeah. I got a good little package from you uh, coming out like debt free. Uh-huh. You know, I, a lot of my friends weren't doing that. So uh-huh. I had a chance to kind of take a year, honestly, uh-huh. no matter what. Uh-huh. And given that I was so flimsy with what I wanted that year to be, mm. I mean, he kind of kind of pressured me into being an adult about it. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, if you're going to go, go now. Don't take a break. Uh-huh. And so I pushed forward, um, but I didn't take the application process seriously. Uh-huh. I took the LSAT late. Mm. I didn't take any prep for it. Mm. What else? I wasn't really working collaboratively with other people I knew were studying for it mm. and like to get ready and just get sharper because it's just about reps, mm. right? Like those, those, that test had no bearing on what how good of a law student I was going to be, which had no bearing on how good of a lawyer I was going to be. And yet it's this measuring stick for whether or not you're worth admission into my school. 
whole nother series. There's another cook on Monday mornings. We talk about standardized <laughs> yeah. test conundrum. Right. But um, I, um, I, I, I kind of stumbled into getting all my stuff together and I got in okay. and went. Okay. But I knew I wanted to be closer to home, mm. back to, you know, at least on the East Coast. And then uh, I wanted to be in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that Obama was going to win at the time. What, what year did you go to law school? 2008. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you was okay. He was, was in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard some rumblings like after graduating. And then I think he had that killer speech. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, it wasn't that year. He was already like on his way to becoming a nominee, maybe. Okay. I can't now, now I'm like confusing the years, but mm-hmm. I was like, I gotta, there's a part of small part of me, and then I'm glad I'd made that bet with myself. Mm-hmm. It's like I you gotta be around for that level of history. Right. And I, I'm glad I was. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when, when Frat Brothers and other folk came in for the inauguration, mm-hmm. so cold that morning. Yeah. Ice cold mm-hmm. that morning. <laughs> uh, uh it, I was like, I live here. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. get to be a part of this for the, at least the next four. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. That was a special moment because uh, I remember too, I, I wrote uh, Nancy Pelosi's office. I was, I was, I graduated college in 2008 and I came back to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming out of school, I don't, th- I don't think I'll ever feel any way. And, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm in politics, right? Right. I'll never feel uh, that, I think, enthralled and tied to anybody's political journey as I did. When he came on the scene in 2007 and throughout his race, like I was like glued to the television. Mm. And now that I'm in politics and I see these people up close, I'm like, you know, like you're not really anybody for me to be that <laughs> impressed by. Yeah. And even having the experience of governing and seeing how he was trying to maneuver throughout his presidency, you know, I don't think many of us felt the same way about um, his second when than we did about the first it would just like capture the country in a way that i don't think i don't i doubt that i'll ever experience again because i'm too i've seen too much you know yeah but but i didn't so i reached out to nancy pelosi's office they sent me tickets to the inauguration okay and i didn't go <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and for how glued i was to the tv like i didn't go because okay, it was on. like we gotta take a pause there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta unpack that at least for right. sixty seconds. What I got, were you thinking? I got the. I think the, it must have been like on a on a Monday or a Tuesday. It was early in the week or something like that. Okay. It, and and I got the tickets like a day before, and I just got a new job, so I would have had to tell my job I was leaving. I would have to buy a plane ticket. I'm fresh out of school. I don't have that much uh, money. You know, I could have made okay. away. Okay, but. I didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. But also, no, the way would have been like uh, gargantuan for you to, to get it through. It felt like a lot of pressure to do it. Yeah. But, but looking back, I mean, you know, it's been, I guess it's been 12, it's been 12 years. Um, looking back on it, it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was something I wish I would have been a part of, especially now knowing that I'll never feel it. I don't think I'll ever feel it another way about that type of political figure again. But it's good that you got to be there. What was that morning like for you? It was incredible. Um, like I said, it was cold, man, but like it was just all of the energy was just pure. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about the the whole inauguration, like jokes that was happening with 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 Trumps mm-hmm. um was they had to fabricate those stories because they didn't have that real that authenticity. Right. Like literally, man, people it was like everybody was on the same page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's you you fast forward to now and it's, you can't believe a time like that existed but for even all of the people that hated him quote unquote never wanted him to be there i mean let's just call it what it is we're racist mm-hmm. and didn't want to see a black man in that seat um i don't know you, you that, that was drowned out by the love mm-hmm. it was palpable right and it didn't have to be said right literally because you were cold and you weren't trying to talk to people <laughs> but, but also like it was just it it's, it's tough for me to describe. Yeah. It was surreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in law school, and, and yeah. So uh, talk about that. Men law school and lost as hell. Uh-huh. Uh, I was um, I was a bad student actually, uh-huh. and I think I blame that on having an easy time in the my K through twelve experience. Okay, like things just came a little easier. I didn't have to put as much into it, um, and I. I took for granted what it meant to actually really study mm-hmm. and grind. Right. And so my first semester was tough, man. The, the, the time 
it wasn't the learning curve, but the the time investment curve was not something I prepared for. Mm-hmm. And um, I played catch up a little bit, but still had the active bug. So I wrote onto a journal, which is it's like a formulaic set of things you got to do okay. to be attractive to a big law firm. Got it. One of them is being on journal. The other be on moot court. You know, you want to be on an honor, honor society. The others get a couple of killer internships if you can, if not just one, mm-hmm. to stamp and verify that people like you and mm-hmm. you're pal- you're like you're palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go and get a big law firm job. I did those two things. I didn't do moot court. I did mock trial. So mm-hmm. the trial version is a little more theatrical. Okay. Um, but also, I, in my mind, harder because you have to be able to think on your feet. And are you familiar with the federal rules of evidence? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked it's that a, question. It's a very, I ask. I was going to like just go into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's the basis on which you you run a trial. Okay. And you are able to introduce evidence mm-hmm. so that the jury can go take it in the back and consider consider everything. Got it. Now, here's what's interesting about it. In real life, when something happens, it happened, right? Mm-hmm. You saw it. Yeah. I could talk to that. In court, when something happens that wasn't supposed to happen, somebody objects and it gets stricken from the record. Uh, okay. But we know people. I saw that and I yeah, heard it. Right, right. So it's some tricky ass. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm not allowed to. This is a, this is a family program. You don't program. have to curse. Yeah, but it's you, a you can program. if you want. There's, some, you don't there's, have to. there's some tricksters uh-huh. out there, uh, namely defense attorneys, because um, depending on the, this, the court type, mm-hmm. criminal being the, the easiest because of the burden, you got to make it uh, prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You can do things so that you can manipulate the jury. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And if it's 12 people, they're people. Right. So the X factors are infinite that you can introduce into to their minds before they get in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's fun. Because mm-hmm. you it's, it's just like mano y mano. Right. Moot court, it's, I mean, you know, your speaking abilities are cool, but it's mostly about writing. Yeah. And that is why I think lawyers appreciate or like honor that a little bit more. Um, so anyway, did those two formulaic things, was on our student bar association, which is a student council okay. again, and you know, got to manage some budgetary stuff. And um, I started a production company. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you laugh. <laughs> uh, with a couple of buddies where I laughed because I was like, well, okay, wow. I'm like, I haven't thought about my law school experience in a while. Uh-huh. But uh, with two of my boys, Jesse and Joe, uh-huh. um, and then Ben, B-Wine, we started a little mini production company. Uh, called Channel Thirty Eight. Okay, we had political interviews. We huh. did uh, comedy sketches, and then we made music. Nice. And it all started from uh, um, a radio show we did in the basement of uh, former Congressman John B. Anderson. Okay, who ran for president in like nineteen eighty or something, huh. and was randomly still living around. And my boy Jesse was randomly living in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> and we we just we would we would finish our work and then go uh-huh. and, and get in the lab uh-huh. and get creative. Uh-huh. Um and then I went and clerked for a judge. Yeah, you sound like a, a high capacity brother. Man, that you're generous. <laughs> Some people would say I'm lost. Okay. Yeah, that's I'm how you did start up. that's yeah, that is how you started the I mean, you may not have had a sense of direction and obviously what you do now, you're not a practicing attorney. I'm correct? not right. And uh um, right. But it sounds like you were you found ways to get plugged in and you took initiative. Right. Uh I think I'm like I got compared to a uh, a dog and I got it was a white guy that said this, so it was You got compared to a dog. Me, like, uh, yeah, okay. a dog, a dog that like sees cars riding by uh, and is just distracted easy, uh, by every car. Uh-huh. Because I don't know. Uh-huh. You're just distracted. Yeah. I feel like that professionally. I see. You know, socially I'm cool. But um were you ever ever an educator? Uh no, I was never a classroom teacher. I've worked a lot in schools, but I never taught a class. Okay. Well, law school was actually too where I became fascinated and I think fully invested mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught uh, my second year of law school, okay. taught constitutional law with a law student team. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's it, it changed my life. How so? Well, uh, we were supposed to be teaching constitutional law um, to freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. But nobody could read over a freshman grade level, you know, um, right by the border of where Northwest and Northeast, uh-huh. uh, um, north, little north of the capital. And um, uh, these you were, kids you were teaching 
constitutional law at a at a high school. At a high school. Okay, okay. I thought you said a college. My fault. No, you went no, to a high school. No, right, high school. Were, okay, and, and then you saw the level of illiteracy, and it opened your eyes. I mean, we I, I, my my purpose in being there was literally moot. Right. Mm. No pun intended, because we right. were trying to get them ready for a moot court competition. Uh-huh. But like, I'm like, how can how can we do this mm-hmm. unless we get creative mm-hmm. and think on our feet and do what educators do every day? Right. And they just persevere through. And so the the level of of I think you know, fractured resources and structures around them, either at the school or at home, um, was something beyond me. I didn't really understand it at the time, mm-hmm. but I was. I remember being just deeply angered mm-hmm. by the fact that these kids, all oh, these were good kids, right. and smart kids too, mm-hmm. couldn't read what we were putting in front of them. Right, and so um, it's heartbreaking. You got, you had to. I had to. I at least had the foresight to know I can't go teach the, the country. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm super passionate now and become the best teacher ever, forget my legal stuff and just go teach, teach for America just to get a credential and get into it. Uh-huh. I can't I can't scale myself. Yeah. So how do we get bigger impact? Yeah. And that opened me up into the policy thing that moved me to Sacramento. I see. So th- that that experience was a catalyst that drove you into education policy work. And you found it out. Is that, uh, let me know if yeah. I'm getting this storyline right. That's right. And then it, you found an opportunity in Sacramento. Yes. And that's and that's how you got started doing education policy with Kevin Johnson. Well, before that I was with um I was working at a group called Students First. Okay. For a woman named Michelle Reed. Who uh, Oh, you and Michelle Reed, uh uh what's it called? Protege? Protege? No, I wouldn't <laughs> say protege. I didn't have that level of access to Michelle. Uh yeah, she she had a uh, lot she's of, a charge figure in public education. She she gets polarizing responses uh-huh. from people for uh-huh. sure she was out in dc she was so that makes sense then like michelle because they were i don't know if they're still married but kevin johnson is yeah. michelle me yeah. michelle Ree. yeah okay so you got connected to her you were out of law school there yeah or her organization uh, through the organization so uh-huh. uh um uh another alum of the teaching program we did is called the marshall Brennan constitutional literacy project he was the vp of policy there okay and then reached out to the director and she knew I was looking for something else. Uh-huh. And so she put it in front of me. Uh-huh. I mean, it's interesting how life works. Cause like that was a passion. I could maybe have jumped and do it, done that. But my whole network professionally was in DC. Right. So I uprooted, uprooted out of DC cause I broke up with my girl. Uh, and I hate to say it like it was an emotional move, but it was uh-huh. an emotional move. Uh-huh. Like, we don't want to be here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah, breakups will, yeah, move you across the country. Yeah, so, yeah ran away, <laughs> ran to California. Okay. Well, you know, I, it was Sacramento's gain in a lot of ways, right? You joined this new office and what was that transition like? Oh, man, that was interesting. Um, Sac is just a different town. Mm-hmm. Um, DC was, is not definitely not what it is today, but it was already kind of changing. Like Columbia Heights was turning over, it was getting a lot wider. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other neighborhoods where you, you, the wave was there, mm-hmm. um, but it was still a recession, especially for lawyers. Right. And so, um, anyway, I uh, I had um, I had a, a very I took for granted being in D.C. because mm-hmm. then moving to Sacramento, it was a town like you had to make Sacramento yours. Okay. And so if you just let stuff come to you, that wasn't gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like you know, music, live music is available every night or, you know, it's it's just a jumping spot. It's low key, very big. It's like mm-hmm. 600,000 people. Mm-hmm. The the county, I think the metro is like 1.2 million. Right. So yeah, that's bigger than DC, mm-hmm. but it still felt really small. Mm-hmm. And so I, I focused a lot on my work and just diving in on becoming smarter about it and figuring out where my place would be. Right. So I was on the policy team, the legislative analyst. I was assigned to California. And as you know, she's she gets polar Michelle gets polarizing um responses from people. Mm-hmm. The teachers union was not very happy yeah. with no. her at all. Yeah, they might not like me now that you on the oh, <laughs> man. I'm just joking. I got I hope I'm sorry, man. This is <laughs> there is a bright line here between hey, No, we should we no. should I mean I definitely want to get into our shared vision of uh what we want to see happen for Black youth in the city, which I think um, should have no political ties. I you love know, that. If, uh, if if children's lives improve, it, we, it has to be apolitical. Yeah, because we're talking about human development. Exactly. And you know, you're not born a Democrat or a Republican. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why does that impact you? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, 
the uh, they were not a fan of her, the policies being pushed. Um, and I'll say uh, in my time learning, you know, I got to see how political and how much money was sort of weighing, weighing down progress, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. true progress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at what was happening in D.C. when she was there, it wasn't popular then. But as people started to come around to it because they're like, oh, we're getting some results. Now, granted, was every um, change a hit? No. Mm -hmm. So was the full policy agenda that we had like absolutely the gold standard anywhere? No. You know, I think ultimately all politics are political mm -hmm. and all education is political. Yeah, absolutely. So look, were you familiar? Were you following the local control funding? But I, you obviously know that now <laughs> in your seat. Yep, yep. I was there when it passed uh -huh. and everybody was a fan of that. Mm -hmm. No matter what spectrum you were on, kids were going to get more money mm -hmm. and we were going to be able to make better decisions locally to impact them. Yeah. Yeah. Ex explain a little about the local control funding oh, formula. Just so the local control funding formula in essence started out really to simplify how we funded our schools. Mm -hmm. Before 2012, there was something called the categorical system mm -hmm. where there were 60 different categories of funding that the state would send out to districts to get funded. And if in certain, in some, some of these categories, if you didn't spend that money, you didn't get to spend it. It was like, you use it or lose it. Right. But are you going to use your, your technology fund every year? If technology is not like, rapidly changing like that for you to want to buy it, need uh -huh, to buy it? Uh -huh. Probably not. You're going to use your library fund every year? You should, in theory. I hate to sound like a jerk. You should. You, <laughs> you should, should use it both but those things. In <laughs> practice, that wasn't happening. Right. And so there were bigger streams of money than, I'll just use those as examples, uh -huh. larger streams of money that were um, underutilized. And as a result, you saw mismanagement, you know, you saw a lack of, uh, of, of, of performance outcomes moving in the right direction in certain places or across the state. And you're like, well, how do we make this easier for districts to be more nimble? Mm -hmm. Let's simplify it down. And from 60, they went to three bands. Okay. So you get your base income or your base allocation for All every right. kid, mm -hmm. your your supplemental allocation for, for priority groups. Mm -hmm. um, those are your English language learners, mm -hmm. your low income status students, and your foster Mm -hmm. students and then you get a concentration band for any district that has the of those supplemental groups 50 plus one percent of them and then for every percentage more you get more right right yep. truly tries to follow the kid uh-huh uh-huh yeah thanks for breaking that down yeah, yeah did i do a good job yeah okay. <laughs> yeah 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 i think there, there are more specialized groups within the ones that you mentioned but it did really yeah. change uh, how schools thought how districts thought about their budgets and think it was it was widely celebrated because you know when we talk about what equity means in education it should more so look like this right it should more so look like we know that certain students need more yeah so we're gonna finance our districts around that you know that that idea that belief um, it's like it was putting it into action so with urban ed academy um it's, is, is, is it no longer a Saturday school? Is it only, well, go ahead. So we don't run the citywide Saturday school for all, for boys as we did. Okay. We now sort of tag teamed um, our Saturday work with our Beacon work or mm -hmm. our Beacon Community School at Malcolm X Academy. And so that's an extended day now we have as an opportunity for those Malcolm X students. And because of the, um, I forget the, the initiative, but all with all SF uh, elementary schools and yards, being available on Saturdays. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that was something that, that they did with the city. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, so Malcolm X's yard gets opened whether we're there or not. Mm -hmm. And we're using that as our hub for running the Saturday programming. Got it. But I think we need to ramp back up into it. We've gotten calls from parents, alumni, uh, alumni who are in middle school now and, you know, are, don't have an opportunity or don't have an option mm -hmm. or don't feel like they have an option and yeah. want to come back. I think we're going to have to get that done. Yeah, yeah. Then there's just there's this thing about real estate, which I think is important for all organizations to think about, all people to think about, like how do you, you know, carve a space out into the city? And once you do that, what's the purpose of that space? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I ran Mission Bit, like the, the nonprofit that I was running for four and a half years, we didn't have our own facility. And so, you know, you, you lease out places, you run programs and other spaces. And for the most part, that's that's all, that's great. With Urban Ed Academy, once I got on the school board, 
you really started to come to me about you know this research-based idea when john hopkins put out this research about um, black students have a higher chance to graduate from uh from high school if they have a black teacher before the third grade sixth grade the sixth grade mm -hmm. okay and so to materialize that research you wanted to provide housing right and you've done that we've done that and we've it's, you've done that in the city of san francisco we've done that in the city of san francisco the most expensive place to live in the country if not you know top one or two you know one is yeah that's phenomenal thank you and i you know i saw and you know i know Dwayne jones who is the founder of urban Ed, and he told me that you now i ain't heard from you i was like they got a building <laughs> i was like like you know not like so not, not saying that you couldn't do it but the fact that you did it when the fight for space is so heavy here you yeah. know um so congratulations for one thank you talk about the facility the story of getting it where it's at right now yeah so we we have um we don't have a a like full-fledged building where we can house everything uh -huh. our strategy has been trying to get with homeowners or property owners of small sites two units or less three units maybe if we can get lucky and basically beat the beat the market to the punch uh -huh. you know how do we get to them to an, an, an enable and activate the use of that asset effectively, that community asset mm -hmm. for a teacher as opposed to anybody else. Right. If that anybody else can afford to be there, they could probably afford to be somewhere else. Uh -huh. This teacher can't. Uh -huh. So what specialized installation can we put around this to streamline it and make it real for the homeowner? Because ultimately as a private owner, they can do what they want to do, right? To and some degree. To yeah. some degree. Well, to some degree. Yeah. But and so within the bounds of the law. Right. Right. It's the lawyer. Um, yeah. Right. We, we, we have to find we have to effectively find ways to convince homeowners and property owners to give up the use of their space for a social good in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Right. Proximity matters. Okay. Is one thing we're trying to test out. Uh -huh. And so we brought that as a pitch to, you know, homeowners we were just meeting through the grapevine, sort of word of mouth. Um, so I got to shout out, you know, Martin Luther McCoy, um, whose family's been in the Bayview for a very long time, um, approached us maybe before we actually started working together on it, maybe like a year ahead of time saying, hey, you know, our family had a McCoy security. Um, they had trained like hundreds of, of residents to get security jobs. Right. The guard cart. Yeah. I, I was, I was, I got a guard card, not through them, but I, but continue. Okay. Oh, okay. It was, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, had, had been this, this pillar, you know, of, of, of community uplift. Um, and I felt like it was, it was sort of poetic to be able to make something like that happen, but we couldn't afford it. It mm -hmm. was, uh, yeah, I don't want to tell you how much he wanted before, but he wanted what the market was telling him he could get for it. Yeah. And, um, we took some time, took some time, um, had a failed opportunity in trying to convert a liquor store into a learning center on Third Street. We had a project called Hacker Hub, Perfect. where we had a bunch of very cool partners, uh, Google, Warriors, um, uh, Facebook, Giants, all pitching in to make this a possibility. Hmm. How do we addi get addition by subtraction, take a liquor store out of a very concentrated neighborhood with them, uh -huh. and then add something to value add for the kids right. and by way of a STEM learning center. Uh -huh. Now, I didn't know it was a multi-pronged process to, to get this done. Uh -huh. So the liquor store tenant was still there and we had to get them out. Uh, that was hard. Okay. Uh, and once we got them out though, um, we got to look behind the walls and a hundred plus year old building needed a lot more work than we could afford. Uh -huh. So we lost the project and uh -huh. had to give back some money to some other funders, but had a little bit of money left that had, was dedicated just to a capital improvement project in the Bayview on Third Street. It was right. like very specific. Uh -huh. We had to figure out how to use it. Uh -huh. So given that I couldn't really extract any value out of that because I didn't own any property or didn't have any leads on any, um, it was the best I could do was say, hey, if I could get you this, what would you give us back for it? Mm -hmm. So if we can improve your commercial space out of this security system and turn it into maybe a mini STEM center. Uh -huh in the commercial part of it, will you give us a break on the rent, on the residential piece upstairs? And I mean, there was a lot of other details that came through, but 
we got to a yes. Okay. So our first building is on Third Street. Um, we are turning that into the Hacker Hub uh -huh. that we're supposed to do. We have our first cohort of teachers living upstairs. Okay. And they're all on track to becoming full-time classroom teachers next year. Okay. Okay. So you, you partner with a private uh, landowner and then made that entire building uh, a space to service the community. Like it's like, it's a commercial storefront where you're doing the, the hacker hub on the first yeah, floor yeah. and then a residential upstairs and all the people that are living in the residential space are working in schools in some capacity. They're working in schools okay. right now. Okay. And, and what's been the process to recruit students for people to come in and teach and work here? Um, so we, on the, the front end of it, uh, we had to build out some relationships with HBCUs um, uh, directly. And we also were adamant with them that we were not going to their education colleges, mm -hmm. where if there were black men in, in those programs, which there aren't many, mm -hmm. if there were though, they're on track. Let them go teach, because that's exactly what they're doing, or that's exactly what we want them to do. Right. We have to influx external talent to it. And so, we we had some some conversations with SF State, a couple of people at Berkeley about what we were doing, um, but something felt um, poetic about helping HBCUs also having their own problems and their own situations, mm -hmm. helping them bring talent into the service industry, right. into the, the the public service industry, mm -hmm. um, and so we got lucky through a mentor, got connected with a couple. And they were like, hey, uh, we got, we can get you to the STEM college here, one of the, the agricultural college, mm -hmm. and try it out. Right. So we had some funds, they were able to fly out. And the pitch was if we could get you some living here and we can run you through the process of developing um, at a high quality level into a teacher, mm -hmm. will you come do it mm -hmm. for our children? Right. The answer has been yes with huh. every single candidate we've talked to. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, you you touched a little bit about about the uh, the issues that uh, HBCUs are facing, and I, I've had two guests thus far that have graduates of Howard, mm -hmm. and um, and I've I've also felt inclined to engage HBCUs through my work commission bit, and I started to look at the graduation rates for a lot of the schools, like a lot of the historic schools like Grambling or mm -hmm. Morehouse. Uh, the graduation rates are are really low from the college, and they are, they've historically had issues around like financial aid, and um, and you know they're such uh, they're 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 so important, I think, to the legacy of the black community in the country, and it's there are institutions that I want to see thrive, and so uh, you know this is all to say that I think you made the right move to try to partner with HBCUs, and I hope that you can continue to do that. Um, and what I really love about the the pieces that you're pulling together is that you know it's it's all in service of solving this problem that's been very evasive for the district and really the country to solve like how do we interrupt outcomes in the positive way for black boys growing up in the country right so so it's, it's very it's, it's it's very innovative you know it was like in a sense like um it's it's also like uh, you're you know it's like you're pulling all these pieces together and it's uh, you should just be celebrated for it you know so it's going to be ups and downs that. along the way but keep going thank you <laughs> keep going uh, what what are you looking to see happen in the coming year around that program what's your vision for the space and ultimately what you want to do in terms of recruiting educators to come to San Francisco well we're uh, we're preparing to bring our third cohort in okay um, and so my vision is. We have to capture um, site control over maybe two more sites to be able to make room for them. We have four sites total under control, three in San Francisco, one in West Oakland. Um, and um, in order, but we have a couple of vacant rooms that we can use. And so we need to get probably two more sites. Uh, we'd love to bring 12 back this time around. Uh, we've been uh, fortunate to be on a good, a good run of getting support and Definitely need some more. So uh, I don't want to act like we just are sweet out here. Uh -huh. um, but um, what type of support do you need? Uh, well, we have a we have an ambitious goal to make sure every elementary school in the city has at least one man of color in it. Okay, um, and we have and, sixty-seven elementary schools in San Francisco. Right, 
Uh-huh. So we think just you know we want to be safe. Public schools, public schools, right? So we want to be safe and get more than that. So uh-huh. we're, our goal is to get a hundred. Uh-huh. To get that, we need to raise ten million dollars in three years. Okay. Uh, so our goal is to raise two million dollars this year, um, and we recently have gotten some um, uh, some some larger investments uh-huh. to try to go and, and get it so we can scale. But I'm not really interested in scaling super broadly on it. I think we need to go a lot more deeper. Um, the, uh, uh, we can go deeper with the current men that we have. And I think 12 is, 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 is still the jump, but I think with a cohort of 20, we can really make some noise about this as a progressive solution mm-hmm. to a, f- a few different problems. Yeah. You know, we, we pride ourselves on sitting at the intersection. Right. Um, and, uh, some of, some funders we've talked to and other folks have questioned that intersection because they are more comfortable in supporting a siloed opportunity. Huh. You know, on the education group wants to see it as education. Workforce groups want to see it as workforce. Housing groups want to see it as housing, but it's, uh. it's really not that. So mm-hmm. another soft goal is to get people more comfortable with talking about blended models across different industries. Uh-huh. I think you have to have a multifaceted solution set to multifaceted problems. We're dealing with a multifaceted issue. And multi generations, <laughs> right? So, right. Like, come yeah. on, like, yeah. yeah. I don't think we can poo poo anything at this yeah. point. Yeah, you know, the, I mean, I, I, that's that's one of the reasons why I've been interested in exploring other policy making opportunities within the cities. Because, like, as much as I love and as as important as it is to to direct policy at the school board, you really can't talk about outcomes for children unless you're talking about the family, right? And the people and the personnel in front of the child. Yeah, and all of that is not just connected to a budget decision that happens at the school board. Mm-hmm. You know, it's connected to transportation, to housing, to public safety, to amenities, right? Like how people get adjusted here and a sense of the community yeah. that you get once you get here. Um, you know, cause you, I mean, it sounds like over the course of your academic time, you found community. Like you found, like you, you, was, you was big enough to the undergrad, where you went to school, that's community. Oh, you was big enough the fraternity. You was big enough the, uh, you know, whatever else you were doing, right? But all that is important to get help people feel adjusted. And where when we ask African Americans to come to a city that doesn't have many African Americans, ooh, and the ones that you see mm. on the streets uh, are facing housing insecurity or suffering, the ones that you see in school. Um, not at all times, but what the data will show is that they're they're not doing well. This this there's not a, a lot of affirming spaces where our people are being elevated, but you're creating that with what you're doing at UrbanNet. We're trying for sure. And um I think um to 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 your point there, we've uh learned a lot of lessons over the last um, now two years doing mm-hmm. this project. Learned a lot of lessons about where we want to focus our time mm-hmm. and where we think we can get the deepest impact with our resources. Right. So we have this after school program. And um, I mean, we're proud of the fact that we can be in schools and be a community service provider. The development piece is a big X factor because it's not to your point, you're not just talking about a professional, you're talking about a person, you're talking about a neighbor, right. you're talking about a man. Uh-huh. And are these young guys ready to step into that? You know, we're, we expect a lot of our, out of our teachers, right. by and large. Mm-hmm. We put a lot of trust in them when we send our kids to school every day. And, you know, I was, you, we were 22 back then, yeah. 23. Yeah. We, we thought we knew some stuff. Uh-huh. But yeah, no what, would you, t- what, yeah. would, what <laughs> would you tell yourself now? Right. Yeah. Right. So um, that, that, that development is, is really nuanced when you talk about, new stuff because people don't want to honestly I, I found this too people just don't want to support the development of of of, of adults mm-hmm. like once you're like supposedly good and on your own like you got a degree you got a college this that and a the third they're not interested in like you getting professional development and you mm-hmm. get social development you mm-hmm. get in therapeutic development right yeah not 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 a lot of nonprofit organizations i think you're, you're going to more so find it like through mentorship and one of the things actually I wanted you to speak to before we we, we sort of wrap we wrap was um, 
I see you everywhere. Like you're all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> you know, you, you like not from around here. What Drake had that line, like uh, I ran it out here. I ain't even from around here or something like, <laughs> something like that. So and uh, and so, you know, networking sounds kind of corny. Like the word, I think people have different associations with it. Yeah, but you're very tapped in. And so, talk about what your process has been for. Um, learning the last the landscape of who's involved in education how you go about your week like what your what your grind is look like how, how you're how you're planning that out how you plan that out well my i think it starts with my disposition and I, I didn't notice as a younger man but now coming into a professional sort of groove um you gotta be a better listener than you are a talker and so that was first you know i didn't i'm not from here um I I lived I don't live here now, but when I was living here, wasn't really. You live in Oakland, but you don't I live in, in Oakland, yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, I used to live in San Francisco, and it was hard mm-hmm. um, for a lot of reasons we talked about. And so I put myself in a learner's mindset, um, and I, I had the 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 liberty or the liberty the the luxury of having some really dedicated mentors early on. You mentioned Dwayne. Um, you know, we talked about Shaman. At times, uh, you talk about Fred Blackwell. You talk about all these other guys that take time to talk to you as a as a young guy. You know, mm-hmm. not necessarily as somebody looking to hustle and get to this thing. Just like let's check in on you, who you are, right? What you need, and um, that vertical networking. I think I got lucky in that I didn't have to chase it as much because I was busy. I was running a nonprofit and I had my, I had work to do. Mm-hmm. So trying to be at the, you know, governor's function or the mm-hmm. mayor's this, that, and the third, mm-hmm. like right. it was never a priority. And I think sometimes the universe conspires for you or with you when you're trying to do the right things. And I focused instead on doing horizontal networking and getting with peers because I was at an age and I'm in a city where some very talented, dope people. Um, and they're going to be that in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. And so they're just as important to know and to get to understand. And, um, and so I made time, I made sure I spent time doing some of that horizontal mapping as well. Mm-hmm. Who's doing some cool stuff that I like to just grab some coffee time with. I think also I'll go in, I'll go into it, not expecting anything. Like, let's just learn from each other. Let's just understand what our energies are. If there's synergies, I'm sure we might be able to work it out. But if not, Glad to know your brother in the city doing some cool stuff or you assisted in the city doing some cool stuff. Hmm. So uh, people were surprised sometimes that I was from the East Coast, had this like pep to me and I didn't want anything hmm. at the end of the meeting. All right. And they're like, all right, you're actually cool. You know, so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so making sure you appreciated and respected people's time, opinion, expertise, authority as natives, folks from here was one thing, the horizontal networking piece. And then the last piece, um, I found that you have to do a fair amount of investing in people for them to want to invest back in you. Mm-hmm. And so that means showing up to people's events when they doing a little parent chat mm-hmm. and there's like five parents in the room right. and then you show up. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what are you doing here? You mm-hmm. know, but did you get a chance to talk to them a little bit afterwards? And right. you took an hour out of your time and next time you want to do something with that person, they're all in because mm-hmm. they see that you're real about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I don't sleep a lot. Mm. That's probably okay. the, the last piece of advice I'll uh-huh. say is uh-huh. make sure you sacrifice some of your sleep time. Okay, uh, I would. Yeah. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I like to wake up early, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, that's okay. Continue. Yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, be, I mean, you you know, it's. I think you get to be places when folks. I think folks when you when you come in with a respectful demeanor, uh-huh. I think people sense it. And it's about investing the time. Yeah. So we are always in the podcast talking about two topics. Okay. One is leadership and one is legacy. Mm. And so you are currently leading an organization. You've had a lot of leadership experiences up until this time with different clubs or what have you. Do you have any guiding principles around leadership? Um, a mentor once told me, the mark of a true leader is not how many followers you can create, it's how many leaders you can create. Mm-hmm. How many people beyond you that you had to touch on are gonna go be better than you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you know you were about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, um, I don't, I, I, I try to be humble about what I'm doing because 
I notice people out there doing incredible things. And, you know, I'm, I'm always um, honored to have the time to, to share what we're doing. So thank you again, man. Uh, I'm really, really honored to, to be able to share this Monday. Um, but I would say um, any aspiring leaders out there need to start looking forward. And you're going to have to pay it for it by making sure the next group is ready and equipped. Right. This ain't about us anymore. Mm -hmm. We're too old, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in our early 30s. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely, I like what your mentor told you, and I think that, that that's true. Yeah. Um, so with Legacy. Yeah. So uh, I named my company after my great-grandfather's the Luther Harris Holding Company, and he came out to San Francisco from this small town in Arkansas with a sixth grade education. When he passed, he had started a sawmill. He had bought several properties for his children. Um, this is his dictionary. Okay. <laughs> These oh. are my uh, great-grandmother's, his wife's chairs. Okay. Um, his legacy is important to me. Yeah. How do you think about legacy? Ooh. Um, it's interesting because I think as I mentioned before, I got, I have a very thin family history and experience to me. Uh -huh. It really starts with my mom and my grandmother, uh -huh. you know, in New Jersey. And I've been fortunate to have a ton of extended family out there and I've got to learn about their things. And so um, I, um, I, I wish I could speak to like a personal familial legacy like that. Um, but I think, I don't think I've been wrong in thinking about it this other way. And I, I'll, I'll encapsulate it in another quote I got from a mentor, which is in the, the San, Francisco, uh, San Francisco, in the California capital, in Sacramento, mm -hmm. you can get any bill passed that you want so long as you don't care whose name is on it. Huh. And so for me, my legacy is going to be about impact. It's not going to be about my name. It's not going to be about my brand. It's about what we get done. Hmm. Um, so I, I would, like in a practical sense, I would love to be a part of the team that repeals Prop 209 here. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we can't have true equity in this state, most progressive state in the country, by limiting ourselves on how we can spend our money. Right. Um, but uh, I'm not interested in being the one that <clears throat> is at the press conference when that happens. Yeah. Um, and I try to approach every every part of my life like that. So if, if the legacy can be that um, my children will have it easier and can do the things they want to do, I'm good with that. Right on. Thank you. Randy. Thank you, sir. Sarah Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an honor to have you on. Ah, thank you, sir. It's, uh, it's been fun, man. Yeah. Can, yeah. can I come back? Can we talk about this? This San Francisco education stuff a little later. Oh yeah, we gotta dive okay. in deep into that. Yeah, okay. yeah, you'll definitely be a returning guest. Okay. All right, peace, peace. There we are. <laughs> peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. I'd like to thank our guest, Randy Saraguchi, for laying out all of the incredible work that Urban Ed Academy is doing to engage, elevate, and inspire our black and brown students in San Francisco and the educators he's bringing in to do that work. I'd like to thank all of you for supporting the podcast by sharing it, viewing it, um, telling your friends about it. Our last podcast with um, our previous guests continue to get new views, and I know it's because you're finding the content valuable, so continue to do that. You can learn more about uh, Urban Ed Academy. We'll share the website on the screen and i'll also share any uh, social media links that randy has on the screen so you can reach out to him to learn more about the organization i'd also like to thank all the people that make this podcast possible i'd like to thank david topete my producer and videographer thank you sir i appreciate you i'd like to thank the editor for the newsletter fernando Encinco marquez thank you brother i appreciate you I'd also like to thank Icy House, who provides all of the mics and uh, the, some of the audio recording equipment for the show. Thank you, Icy House, and thank you to the founder of Icy House, my lady. Her name is Saba. 
Asaba. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'd also uh, just like to mention once again that at my company, Luther Harris Holding Company, we are interested in doing podcast production. So if you are interested in starting your own podcast, you can reach out to me to talk about it at infostevonclick.com. One of the main priorities at Luther Harris Holding Company is to help uh, is to help companies grow, whether it's brand awareness, community engagement, strategic growth. We offer strategic advising consulting services. So if you're interested in talking more about that, you can reach out to me at infostevoncook.com. We are in 2020. We are moving toward our goal of getting 2020 subscribers by April 30th, at the end of the first quarter of this year. You can participate in us reaching that goal by also, you know, continuing to share and subscribe. And finally, I want to thank the people of San Francisco to help our city run. Thank you all for the incredible work that you do. Thank you to our teachers, our custodians, our school lunch workers. Thank you to our first responders, our people that are in the fire department, our people that are EMTs. Thank you to the people that keep our streets clean and our muni drivers. And shout out to my dad. He's a driver for San Francisco, MTA, a muni driver. You keep our city moving. This podcast is for you. I'm your biggest fan. I appreciate you. Keep tuning in. Keep engaging. The last thing I'll say is that finally, you know, Cook on Monday morning, we always want to change how people feel about Monday morning because we believe we can change Monday morning. We can change our week. If we change our week, we can change our year. And if we change our year, we'll change our lives. That goes for the people of San Francisco. It also goes to people that are in cities like New Orleans, Houston, Dallas, Philadelphia, New Jersey, <laughs> New York, Detroit, Miami. I want to hear more about what you're doing to change your Monday morning. I want to hear about the great organizations and leaders in your community. Continue to engage with me on Twitter at Stephon Cook. And I look forward to building a thriving community together. Peace, peace, and we out. <laughs>